Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to a special This Week in FCPA episode, episode 82, the year-end wrap-up edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I take things in a little bit different direction. We take our top five podcasts uh, based upon the numbers of downloads and listen-ins from 2017, and in each episode, Jay and I pick out the stories that we thought were the most significant and how they related to some of the top issues of compliance in 2017. We had a ton of fun uh, reviewing these episodes. We had some uh, really interesting numbers of uh, downloads and listeners, so I think you will uh, enjoy this. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with Jay Rosen for 2017's final edition of This Week in FCPA. We are recording this on December 31, as truly it is our year-end edition. And what uh, Jay and I thought we would do this week is something a little bit different. We have taken the top five most popular episode podcast episodes over the past year, and we're going to talk about our favorite story from each one of those episodes. Sometimes they co- coincide, sometimes they don't. But uh, given that these were the top five, uh, I thought it would be a good way for us to really kind of review the uh, the year. We may do that in another episode, but right now this is the F- This Week in FCPA year in review. So Jay, uh, with that, uh, happy December 31st. My daughter is 21 today. Congratulations. She's out of the house and no longer a financial burden, correct? Uh, as as uh, correct. How did you know that? <laughs> so uh, as she texted me last night, uh, was hitting the bars at 12.01. So uh, anyway, happy birthday, honey. <laughs> happy birthday, indeed. Yes. So uh, why don't we just jump right into it, Jay? Uh, we've got some uh, what I think are just uh, outstanding numbers on some of these podcasts. Uh, as I think all of our listeners know, uh, we post this week in FCPA on multiple platforms, uh, including uh, my site. Uh, Jay uh, always uh, puts it up on social media and sometimes <clears throat> puts it on affiliated monitors uh, site or LinkedIn site. We also have uh, iTunes, JD Supra, Libsyn, and of course we have a YouTube feed. So uh, I've taken the aggregate of those numbers, Jay, so that's where these numbers are going to come from. The first uh, number one in our list of 2017 podcast episodes was episode 55, the Covfevi edition, posted on June 2, 2017, with uh, 13,327 hits. So, Jay, uh, why don't I give you the honors and you tell me what was your favorite topic from that episode? So, the uh, topic that I wanted to highlight is an article by Ben Pietro that appeared in Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal and was about compliance making its way into the boards of directors. And I think as we've seen play out this year, there's just been numerous instances where we've had companies and we could talk about 
post your children like Uber or talk about recidivists like Wells Fargo, where there's really been a disconnect between the board and what the company is accomplishing from an ethics and compliance perspective. So that's the story of, uh, that stood out to me on that episode. So, uh, Jay, perhaps uh, we need to take a step back and explain uh, what uh, the title Covfevi uh, derived from. You want to take it uh, through that one? Yeah, I think it was uh, the president's fat fingers, and uh, he was uh, probably quite not into the swing of his um, tweeting that day. And for some reason, uh, Kofefi has become one of the uh, words of the year. Uh, Millie and Michaela still talk about whether or not daddy's going to have his Kofefi in the morning. So uh, that's uh, the uh, germination of that word. So, Jay, my uh, favorite topic from the Kofevi edition, uh, which may actually turn out to be one of the, the bywords or signature words of the Trump administration, was a story that Sam Rubenfeld uh, had in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal and also appeared in Bloomberg. And it was the one individual who was criminally sentenced in the OCZIF massive FCPA enforcement action that occurred in uh, 2016. And this was uh, Samuel Mimbiami, who was sentenced to two years behind bars for paying brib, uh, br- excuse me, paying bribs, bribes on behalf of OCZIF for lucrative mining deals in Africa. And, and Jay, the thing that struck me about this was not the individual prosecution, because I found that uh, really to be in line with uh, what the Department of Justice had talked about, uh, at least since the Yates memo, and really before that, about individuals who were culpable would be prosecuted. But the, um, the reaction of the trial judge, and the trial judge basically said, you had a company that paid uh, some four hundred million dollars in fines and not one company employee officer or director was criminally prosecuted. So um, the judge really called out the Department of Justice to prosecute more individuals. Uh, this clarion call has come from from many quarters and many sides. And when judges start um, calling out uh, the Department of Justice for not prosecuting corporate uh, officers, directors and employees, I think um that may that may send the Department of Justice in a direction. Now, I, I would opine that based upon comments we've heard from the Department of Justice since that time, certainly in the new Sessions Justice Department, that they will vigorously enforce uh, uh, the FCPA against individuals. And certainly in the fall uh, quarters three and four of 2017, we saw multiple enforcement actions against individuals really right up to uh, to the week um uh, I guess this week, uh, with uh, the announcement of the uh, the general former lawyer from uh, Keppel, uh, who pled guilty and is cooperating with the Department of Justice, but uh, I've really found that um, uh, interesting when the judge calls out the Department of Justice. Uh, this certainly ties into many other strands of thoughts we heard throughout the year. Uh, Jesse Eisender's book, The Chicken Shit Club, certainly comes to mind about the lack of the Department of Justice. Uh, prosecuting individuals from the financial uh, crisis of 2008. You know, that 
perhaps could have even led to uh, Paul Pelletier uh, standing for uh, for Congress. He's um, in a Democratic primary in Washington, or excuse me, I believe in Maryland, but perhaps Virginia, but North, Northern Virginia, Northern Virginia. So really the, the ramifications and outfall from the lack of individual prosecutions has gone in many different directions. And it just struck me that that one comment by that particular judge really crystallized lots of things people were thinking and talking about. Uh, it, and given the comments of certainly Rod Rosenstein, um, th- the Department of Justice was uh, going to respond to that as well. So, Jay, uh, next up was episode 53 uh, for the week ending May 19th, also posted on May 19th, the I Left My Heart in San Francisco edition that came in second with 11,824 views and hits. So what uh, really struck you about this, or what was your favorite topic, I should say, from this edition? Well, I think my favorite topic, let's see, from episode 53 uh, was another report that came out in the Wall Street Journal and um, in the risk and compliance section, uh, rather the risk and compliance journal. And the question that was asked was, should compliance and ethics be wedded? And there were two different reports, uh, one by the Institute of Business and Ethics and the other by the Ethics Institute. And they really came up with um, competing answers. And some of the thoughts that were expressed in the article is that there are two different um, skill sets between, and this is the argument, this is not what I believe, that there's two different skill sets between ethics and compliance. And some people look at compliance being the rules of what you cannot do. And um, ethics are looked at things that, you know, whether or not something is uh, legal that you can do. So when you try to make that demarcation, uh, it's really not a clean cut. And um, I think my perspective is that each uh, area, ethics and compliance, inform each other. And uh, what we're trying to do when we work with people proactively is inculcate the ethics into their daily business fabric. So if the ethics is there, we feel that the compliance should take care of itself. So it's, it's an interesting argument. It comes up a lot of times between the chicken and the egg. But I think uh, when we take a look at this year and wrap it up in total, we'll see that there's been a lot of progress made between uh, bringing uh, ethics and compliance together and having a proactive blurring of that line. So, Jay, uh, part of your work with affiliated monitors, or I should say part of the work of affiliated monitors, is to really go in and assess where a company may be. That part of that assessment could be on a specific part of a best practices compliance program. It could be an overall assessment, but it could also be sort of a cultural values, ethical type assessment. Is that something that uh, affiliated monitors and it, it sees as part of its remit when it comes in and tries to help a company get back on track? Yeah, I think you did a real uh, nice job of distilling that, Tom. And what we want to be able to do is get our clients in a position that they, if they have to go through this pain, that they only have to go through this pain once. And we really believe that uh, if you can't get the company on correct ethical footing, 
then, you know, unfortunately, they're in a position to be, maybe become a recidivist. So that ethics piece we find is really important. And when we go in on a um, potential on a mandate, whether it's a proactive mandate or it's a mandate that's been, uh, you know, uh, forced upon the company by a settlement and by the regulators, the first thing we need to do is do a baseline assessment of where our com- company stands from an ethics and compliance standpoint. And then that effectively gives us a roadmap that we're able to follow in the successive months or the years, depending on how long the monitor period is. So, Jay, my favorite story from the uh, I Left My Heart in San Francisco uh, edition was that on May 19th, the Houston Astros led the Major League, led MLB, Major League Baseball, with the best record. And um, we are probably going to get a little bit ahead of myself here by announcing the top story of 2017, which was, of course, the Astros winning the World Series. But... Uh, leaving that small uh, issue aside, the thing that um, I use the Astros to explore a multitude of compliance uh, issues throughout the year. And since they played baseball up until November 1st, had lots of opportunities to discuss things. And uh, as innocuous as that topic may have sounded, uh, or I suppose in Jay Rosen speak, as Homer as that topic may have sounded, <laughs> it actually had a... Um, um, really a compliance angle. And that's what I was really able to uh, uh, think about and think through with the Astros with their uh, run up to uh, winning the World Series. Did I mention, Jay, that the Astros won the World Series in 2017? If I didn't hear. Once or me, twice. Uh, Once or twice. Let me tell you that in, in case you didn't hear. Um, sorry, Adam Turtle Tom. Nevertheless, uh, what it really got me thinking about was the second part, which was would the Astros regress to the mean? Now, of course, they didn't because they went on to win the 2017 World Series, being crowned the best team in baseball in a seven-game series with the Los Angeles Dodgers. But for the compliance practitioner, it really brought up how do you use data and how do you use big data and how do you make a determination when there's an anomaly or what we might call a red flag? So if you have a sales force and sales team that have uh, uh, been kind of middling along in the middle of the pack in one country in a continent. So say in Poland consistently comes in in the middle of the range of sales for countries in Europe and you have a spike in that uh, and that spike stays there. Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean from the compliance perspective? What does it mean if they regress to the mean? What if it means meaning they go back to being in the middle? And I don't think many compliance practitioners really think about or think through uh, what happens uh, with statistics and when you <clears throat> regress to the mean. And even when you get a big sales spike, what does that mean? So I really wanted to use the, um, as, as you might might be able to tell, I was thrilled in May when Houston had the best record in baseball. Uh, I have to say, I never never thought it would continue that way, but did I mention that they won the World Series in 2017? They didn't. Let me remind you of that. And for the compliance practitioner, when you get a sales spike, when a country goes from number 15 to number one, what's the reason? Is there a compliance angle? Is there an ethical angle? Has it violated any of your compliance program or even your ethical values? So, I really wanted compliance practitioners to think about 
the not only the use of data, the use of their data, but also uh, the anal- analysis of that data. So the Astros in winning the 2017 World Series gave me lots of opportunities to talk about the wedding uh, putting together as uh, you talked about with compliance and ethics, of not only data, but also the skeptical eye of a compliance practitioner, compliance professional, or chief compliance officer to really take a hard look at what does the data mean. So it gave us uh, the opportunity to talk about that. We continued to talk about it. And for the last time, if I didn't mention it, Jay, the Astros won uh, the World Series ending a 55-year drought uh, kind of middling for teams that have had droughts, nevertheless, uh, big for us here in Houston. So the um, third most listened to podcast on our top five was uh, episode 52 for the week ending May 12th called The Firing the Investigators Edition, and that had 11,396 hits. So, Tom, what was your favorite story from uh, Firing the Investigators Edition? So from firing the investigators edition was uh, a story by James Stewart uh, in his common sense column in the New York Times that was about the CEO of Barclays. And CEO is a fellow named Jess Staley's, although Barclays is a UK company. Uh, Staley is a uh, is a Yank. And he went over to take over Barclays. And it was about some some fairly serious missteps in judgment that Staley made, most particularly around two issues. One was there was an anonymous whistleblower complaint about a senior executive, and Staley on two separate uh, uh, occasions uh, instructed the corporate security department to to provide him the name of the um, whistleblower. And as anyone listening to this podcast would recognize, anonymous whistleblowing is an incredibly uh, important part of any best practices compliance program. It's something the Department of Justice, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and I think the UK uh, Serious Fraud Office and a wide variety of regulators view as a, a um, part of any best practices compliance program. And trying to unmask a whistleblower is something that uh, will put you on the serious Santa naughty list. Um for those of you who uh, who uh, didn't get a present on uh, December 25th, I hope it wasn't for trying to unmask an anonymous whistleblower. And it struck me that <clears throat> how important... What happens if you unmask somebody with a Pfizer warrant? Is that a problem too? Well, no. Then you've had judicial oversight, and Santa respects judicial oversight. Sorry for the interruption. Yes. But uh, CEOs, uh, the judgment of CEOs and their actions really do matter. And I wondered what message that sent to uh, not only the whistleblower at the Barclays case, but um, the others, uh, other employees. Uh, If they make if they raise their hands and make a complaint, are they going to be outed by the CEO himself? There was a second uh, situation where uh, Staley um, really got into a conflict of interest in a deal involving his brother in law. Uh, who was uh, sitting across the table from one of Barclays' big clients, and he, um, Staley took the position uh, supporting his brother-in-law, and the client was uh, very upset with that. So uh, really a conflict of interest issue. But it, it really drove home to me the importance, Jay, of the tone at the top and the conduct of uh, those at the top and what that conduct really means uh, for a best practices compliance program. So what, uh, what did you like about... Uh, uh, firing the investigators edition. 
this one uh, was uh, the same week that we had uh, an executive report come out from the Ethics and Compliance Initiative. And uh, my colleague, uh, Eric Feldman, who's been on the show uh, quite a few times, and his colleague, uh, Michael Callens, together with a group of folks at the ECI, uh, put together one of the first uh, monitors benchmarking reports. And um, the very high-level findings were that uh, there, this was a comprehensive overview of the monitoring process, and the report acknowledged that there's a certain amount of overlap between two types of monitoring, uh, mandatory and proactive. And uh, the report begins by exploring recent trends, and these trends encompass both organizations who choose to engage a monitor and those who accept a monitor by agreement. And in fact, one of the most recent trends is the number of organizations choosing to voluntarily engage a monitor. So one of the things that we just recently saw with the new um, pilot program, which now has been put into law, is that um, not only by offering a declination, but also offering the additional carrot of not having a monitor, that is uh, a good reason to incent a company to want to cooperate with the DOJ and the SEC. If you take that a step further, uh, we are starting to see a lot of clients who are wanting to bring in a monitor on a proactive basis uh, saying that if you've got your sales spike in Poland and you might think there's an issue, there's a lot of value by bringing in a monitoring organization and running a proactive monitorship under the auspices of outside counsel. And then at that point, if you need to come into the government, you can show them that you have made an attempt to diagnose uh, the control issues, to put together a self-remediation program, and this may be a valuable piece to uh, negotiating with the government and getting a favorite out a, favor um, a favorable outcome. So that's kind of some of the things that we've taken out of the report. And in the uh, notes section, we will definitely have a link to the summary where you can read this. So that was my uh, standout article from that week. So, Jay, next up at number four of our most popular episode in 2017 was uh, episode 54, the Rubber Match Edition, which uh, was for the week ending May 26, 2017, with 11,394 hits. Now, we should say the Rubber Match Edition was in honor of the uh, Warriors-Cavaliers uh, meeting for the third straight uh, NBA championship, and I believe the uh, Warriors took this one, but... Uh, what struck you uh, or what really piqued your interest in that episode, Jay? Well, in that episode, I was uh, coming back from uh, SCCE conference. There was a one-day conference in San Francisco, and uh, I used that opportunity to recap the program. And, um, you know, one of my takeaways was that when SCCE plans these programs, they are doing it sometimes a year, sometimes nine months out uh, in advance. And they really have an uncanny ability uh, to put the right people in a room and to have topics that are right on point. So in that uh, basically eight-hour span, we talked about 
cybersecurity threats. We talked about the Yates memo one year later. Um, we talked about how you can use big data. And then we actually ended up with a very interesting final session where we uh, worked with a wellness and mindfulness instructor to um, really look at some soft skills that you can use to be a more successful compliance and legal professional. And, uh, you know, I've been a member of SCCE. I think this is going on my uh, sixth year. And uh, this is an organization that never stops asking what if. Uh, nothing is written in stone, and they are always seem to be at the forefront of uh, promoting the next level of ethics and compliance. And uh, so I wrote about this in one of my rare uh, Jay Rosen weekend reviews, and that was what uh, I found uh, one of the top stories that I reported on that week. So, Jay, the uh, story from that week uh, that struck me was there was a very high-profile enforcement, FCPA enforcement action involving the CFO of, uh, excuse me, the CCO of MoneyGram. And uh, it really brought about a lot of comments and commentary in uh, the FCPA world about whether chief compliance officers we're now going to be um, in the uh, in the crosshairs of the Department of Justice, and the reason I really picked this story is the um, CCO was a fellow named Thomas Hader, and he agreed to pay a two hundred fifty thousand dollar penalty and be barred as a compliance officer for any money transmitter for three years. But it really drove home to me, Jay, that CCOs do not need uh, to be concerned for actions where their uh, discretionary calls uh, may have turned out to be wrong. Uh, There's never been a prosecution of a chief compliance officer, both a regulated or non-regulated industry, and MoneyGram was regulated, or is regulated rather, um, for um, uh, making even a negligent decision. Uh, But what we had here was Hayter was a part of the uh, violations of both the Bank Secrecy Act and um, uh, one other law. It was prosecuted by uh, financial crimes, FinCEN, and uh, MoneyGram itself uh, had paid over a million dollar uh, fine, I think, um, um, as well. So um, it drove home the message that when a chief compliance officer is a part of the illegal conduct, that a chief compliance officer will be prosecuted, um, as would uh, as any other employee. Uh, I should say the MoneyGram fine was not one million, but one hundred million. So it's a pretty hefty fine. And if a chief compliance officer engages in is part of the conspiracy um, for whatever law, whether it's the FCPA, whether it's the Bank Secrecy Act, whether it's some other law, uh, they're going to be held equally responsible. So um, I don't think compliance officers need to be concerned about. Prosecutions from the DOJ or SEC, whether in the regulated industry or not, uh, but uh, it, it did drive home a message that I think has always been there: that if you violate the law, you will be prosecuted. And it's pretty clear that Hader um, had violated the law and um, around uh, suspicious payments and third parties uh, as well. So, some lessons uh, from uh, that edition. Jay, our final uh, episode, coming in at number five, 
was the episode Home for the Holidays edition. It was for the week ending October, excuse me, November 17, 2017, which was the last Friday before Thanksgiving. Uh, that episode, we had uh, 10,236 uh, views. So what were you, what, what was your favorite topic from the week before Thanksgiving of this year? Uh, so once again, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, our good friend Henry Cutter, who started working there uh, in the second half of the year. And uh, this is a story that's near and dear to my heart that in a uh, filing, Walmart said that they had, were able now to estimate the final costs associated with their FCPA action and investigation, and they had put aside a reserve of $283 million. And uh, that would signal a settlement coming to the company uh, after it's spent more than $800 million since 2012 on the investigation. Now, it is um, December 31st, so... I think uh, unless something happens on a Sunday, which I doubt it will, it looks like the investigation will now be moving into its seventh year. So, uh, you know, a, a couple takeaways is that, you know, I, I think the company now has probably the preeminent ethics and compliance program globally because they've spent more than three quarters of a billion dollars. But what's causing me to continue to scratch my head is, uh, you know, how come there has not been a settlement? And it made sense that there wouldn't be a settlement at the end of last year because they wanted to see what was going to happen with the Trump administration. And we've dissected several differences. And the, the recent, uh, you know, final adoption of the, um, you know, pilot program seems to indicate that there is more of an incentive from the government's perspective to get a company to settle. So I'm still curious uh, why this has not happened yet. And, uh, you know, this I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully seeing some resolution in uh, Q1 or Q2 of 2018. So that was uh, my big story from that week, thinking that the end was near. So it turns out the end was not near. Uh, the end is not nigh. But you actually had another um, kind of another uh, 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 story from from that episode that you also wanted to highlight. I did. One B. Oh, one B. Yes. I'm sorry. Uh, again, uh, the everything compliance gang uh, put together an ebook under the leadership of Tom. And we all talked about our uh, recent experiences at the SCCE 2017 Compliance and Ethics Institute. Um, that ebook is available on uh, JD Supra. And uh, we will also include that in the show notes. So uh, basically, Tom, uh, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, and myself, uh, committed to uh, paper some of the highlights and some of the things that we learned when we got together with our colleagues in Vegas. And uh, once again, in 2018, uh, SCCE will be holding their conference in Las Vegas towards the end of October. So uh, I guess we're uh, all sitting by our emails waiting to see uh, if we've been chosen to participate again. So um, that was 1B. Thank you for reminding me of that, Tom. 
Well, Jay, uh, I actually also, my topic uh, sort of picks up from uh, something that I learned or explored at SCCE, and it led to a podcast and a uh, couple of blog posts and really uh, uh, creating a relationship for for me with uh, two fellows that uh, you knew and you had uh, given me a virtual introduction to that I met uh, the old-fashioned way in person at SCCE, Mark Havner and Bryant Belknap, and they are with Resonate. Uh, dot com and resonate.com they're both uh, as as jay is a uh, both recovering hollywoodites and uh, although they left the los angeles area and they've started a company where they use movie clips to expand compliance training compliance communication and really the uh, the entire way that you would communicate with your employee base your third party base uh, other stakeholders around compliance. But the key is, uh, because of their movie background, they really focus on using movie clips to help help illustrate points. And what uh, they really brought to the table is they are not compliance officers. And uh, I think if you took one look at Brian with about a, a six to eight inch beard, you would pretty quickly recognize he does not sit in a CCO chair in many corporations. Nevertheless, their type, uh, their ability to bring Hollywood screenwriter storytelling, and uh, that was Brian's skill, and then Mark was from the production side of things, to bring production, Hollywood production, to uh, compliance videos, both um, uh, bespoke, uh, ordered by companies, and uh, more general, I thought really presaged a lot of the things that I've been thinking about, writing about, and talking about in terms of the use of storytelling and compliance. I hope that the three of us are able to uh, not only continue the conversation, but really find out some ways or figure out some ways to to bring storytelling, the type of storytelling that you did as a screenwriter, Jay, to the compliance world, because I find it to be uh, a very powerful way way to communicate uh, concepts of compliance, but also concepts of of greater ethical values that you talked about a little bit earlier. And uh, obviously, storytelling has been with us for for many a moon. you know, back to Homer and the Greeks and probably beyond that, before that, um, uh, with Gilgamesh. So uh, storytelling is a way to expand, as I think it was Brian, excuse me, Mark said, to expand your compliance training classroom. And uh, really enjoyed having the chance to meet with them and talk about uh, or hear about the really exciting concepts they had and are implementing into the compliance space. They put on a uh, uh, three-hour webinar, not a webinar, but a workshop at the SCC where they talked about those concepts. They've released an ebook that talks about bringing storytelling into your compliance program. Uh, I recommend that. It's uh, free and available. They have a great website where they post uh, every Monday a compliance-related clip from the movies that they use to illustrate a particular point. So I'm hoping that uh, their type of storytelling and your type of storytelling, if I can draw upon your background a little bit as, as well, to to bring uh, to really expand the, the compliance communication into a fully uh, 360 degrees of communication. So, Jay, um, those were our top five, and I think uh, I certainly uh, think that the ones we've selected really – um, highlighted many of the top issues that uh, I saw in uh, 2017. <clears throat> Any final thoughts? Uh, I'm just uh, 
first of all, grateful to have uh, spent another year uh, getting together with you on Fridays, or in this case, on Sundays. Uh, I continuously learn a lot, and uh, it's really great to be part of this conversation and uh, make it available to other folks in the community. Uh, I think we've built a, a stronger ethics and compliance community over over the year, and um, I look forward to the year ahead in 2018 and uh, speaking with you on a weekly basis and uh, seeing whether we can get uh, a Houston Red Sox uh, World Series sometime in uh, October 2018. Well, for once, I can say uh, that part is on you because we will certainly be there again. <laughs> So, Jay, you want to, uh, for uh, the holiday edition, uh, end of the year, you want to take us out with a, uh, a rousing uh, end of the year goodbye? I definitely will. So, uh, for this week in FCPA, the year-end wrap-up on December 31st, 2017, on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we wish you all a happy and safe New Year's Eve, and we look forward to picking up the conversation again in 2018. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this special year-end wrap-up of This Week in FCPA, and I certainly hope you enjoy it. I would like to announce my 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program podcast, which will be premiering on January 1, 2018. 2017 was quite an important year for every compliance practitioner and compliance program. It brought two significant or very important documents on compliance programs from the Department of Justice. The first was the 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs released in February, and in November was the new FCPA Enforcement Policy, the FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy announced by Rod Rosenstein. Both of these policies, uh, both the policy and the evaluation, gave us additional information on what goes into a best practices compliance program. I put all that together in conjunction with the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program into a one-month series, a 31-day series for January. I think you will find it fascinating and extremely useful for the, you, the compliance practitioner, in your compliance practice. So I hope you will uh, tune in. It's going to be available on this channel, the FCPA Compliance Report, Libsyn, iTunes, YouTube, and, of course, J.D. Supra. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to our year and wrap-up of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.